Well, good morning, and uh, good to see you all here this morning. Uh, go ahead and get your Bible out and turn to the book of Habakkuk. And uh, as you're turning there, before I forget, I want to thank uh, all of you for praying for us uh, over these last couple of days on our elder retreat. Some of you have asked about that. I had a great time, a really, really productive time. Appreciate you guys uh, praying for us in that. Got a lot accomplished. And uh, in a moment, we're going to turn to the book of Habakkuk. Some of you are like, Habakkuk, where in the world is that? This is one of the few Sundays that I would suggest to you, if you have a tablet or a device and the Bible on that, you might be ahead of the curve. Uh, you can just type it in and go right to the table of contents. Here's the deal. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we have some available in the lobby. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. But Habakkuk, probably the easiest way to get to it, it's towards the very end of the Old Testament. Uh, my encouragement to you, turn to the book of Matthew, which kicks off the New Testament. Hang a left. You're going to go back three, uh, four books, a couple of books that start with a Z, uh, Haggai, and uh, Malachi, and then you'll hit Habakkuk. If you hit Nahum or Jonah or one of those books you've gone too far, turn back to the right. All right, uh, small book. It's all of three pages uh, in my Bible, but very, very powerful book. And uh, for the next five weeks, we're going to preach through the book of Habakkuk. And it, as is true of any book of the Bible, it's always really, really important to understand how any book or any particular book fits into the larger scope of the scriptures. But I would say that that's especially true when you start talking about the prophets. I mean, can, can we just be honest that some of the stuff in the prophets, even when you know exactly what they're talking about, is a little bit weird? I mean, some of that stuff sometimes it's just like, what are you talking about? But if we don't know what's going on contextually with the prophets, we miss so much of what's happening. See, the, the, the prophets are speaking into a specific context, into a specific situation, to a specific people that have specific things that are going on. And so before we actually get to Habakkuk and we get to Habakkuk 1, I think it's important for us to understand the context, to frame, here's what's happening for these people and, and, and what's going on. Now, the, we, there's some debate as to when exactly Habakkuk was written. We know that it was written sometime in the 600s BC, most likely in the latter part of that century. Um, but let me back up a few hundred years prior to that to just walk us down the road a little bit and understand a little more of the context of what's going on. So many of us, right, we, we remember, we know David, we know Solomon. Uh, Solomon had a number of sons, but two of his sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, both thought that they should have been next in line uh, to be king. And so what happened is the kingdom was literally divided around who thought should lead. And so you had a split kingdom. The northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah. A couple hundred, fast forward a couple hundred years later, and the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, neither of these places were exactly lighting it up spiritually, if you know what I mean. Lots of uh, wickedness and injustice and evil uh, that's going on. And so in 722, the northern kingdom of Israel is taken captive and moved into exile by the Assyrians, but the southern kingdom, Judah, is able to hold them off. In fact, you can read about King Hezekiah um, in Chronicles and Kings and in, and in the book of Isaiah, where, where they come uh, to take Judah captive as well, and he ends up praying, and in a single night, 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army dead. And so Judah uh, is, is able to push back from that captivity, at least for a season. But they don't exactly turn the corner spiritually. In fact, things progressively get, gets worse. And so while we don't know for sure when Habakkuk is written, we know that it's moving towards the time that what eventually happens is that Judah as well is going to go into captivity. And Habakkuk is written as, as a warning. It's a gracious and kind warning of God that to a wicked and rebellious nation, that God is going to judge them for their well-being. Now you might say, what in the world? How do you judge anyone for their well-being? Well, that's what the book of Habakkuk is going to unpack for us. And so you can um, see our, our, our title or our series, or the title for the series is this, it's Mercy in Judgment. Mercy in Judgment. And what this book is going to do over the next five weeks as we walk through the book of Habakkuk, we're, we're going to see the reality of God's justice and His judgment, but it pushes us to the reality of salvation. And so often we hear that word judgment, 
And we want to jump all over that. Well, we can't talk about that, and, and who can judge, and no one can do that. Okay, well, l- listen. Judgment is what you see in the cross. Judgment is at the very epicenter of the gospel and the good news of Jesus. It's God taking the wrath or the punishment of sin that belongs to us and placing it on his son. Now, that might be a little bit different than some of the judgment we see in our society and in today's day and age. But let's not miss the reality that judgment is crucial. It is foundational with respect to the gospel. And so as we look at the book of Habakkuk, here's the deal. You're not going to see Jesus' name in the book of Habakkuk. But anytime you're reading in the Old Testament, I think it's good for us to remember that the the whole of the Old Testament leans forward, pushes us forward towards the cross. And so while Jesus won't be specifically mentioned in here, the same principle of, of the cross and judgment and God's salvation and all of those things are very much at play in the book of Habakkuk. Now this book is essentially a dialogue. It's a back and forth between God and a prophet. And, and what we'll see is multiple exchanges over the course of the next five weeks where God and Habakkuk are going back and forth on a variety of issues. And so with that, that's kind of an overview of, of what's going on and what we're looking at. I want us to turn and just be a little bit more specific now with the text that we're heading to this morning. And we're going to look at Habakkuk 1, uh, starting in verse 1, and we'll move through verse 11. And, uh, you know, if you've ever found yourself saying something like this, God, why? blank. God, how long until blank? God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, why is this happening? God, what is going on here? If you ever found yourself saying something like that, this is a book that's going to speak right into that sentiment and that reality. So, let's read uh, Habakkuk 1. I encourage you to follow along as I read it out loud. Here's what God's Word uh, says for you and I this morning, loved ones. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, and now Habakkuk begins to speak. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? That's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? Look at what he goes on to say. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And then God responds. Listen to what God says to Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Now, verse 5 sounds pretty good, doesn't it? This is why context is so important. Look at verse 6. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians. God's saying, I I have an instrument to deal with the injustice and the violence and the wickedness of Judah. And it's this very wicked and vile country over here. And then in the second half of verse 6 through the end of the text that we're looking at this morning, God describes the instrument of judgment that is the Chaldeans. He says this about them, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on The horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up the earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Um, Not... A happy message. Um, this is not a book where you're going to find a lot of butterflies in your stomach. The warm fuzzies aren't really at, in play right now. Um, but equally important, equally crucial, equally necessary for us to understand the, 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 the lament and the struggle and the judgment and justice and wrath of God with respect to this. So before we go any, forth, any further, 
Let's stop. Let's pray. Let's ask God to give us wisdom. We need wisdom on this, loved ones, and let's ask him just for that. Lord Jesus, as we come before you, we we pray that you would give us great wisdom and insight. We pray that you would help us to know and understand what it is that you would have for us this morning. We pray that as we, we walk through this text, in some respects, it's so freeing and, and so incredible. In other respects, it's just hard, hard to, what do we do with that? And what do we say to that? How do we respond to that? And so we're praying, God, that you'd give us wisdom. We pray that your spirit would enlighten and, and help us to understand, to unfold and unpack what you have for us. God, not only for us, I pray for um, Providence Christian Church and for Pastor Ten- Dennis Harrelson, and we pray for him this morning, that as he teaches, that as he preaches your word, God, that you would give uh, that body of believers your wisdom as well. And God, for us in these next few moments as we walk through this text, God, would you give us wisdom? But not only wisdom, God, would you give us insight? God, would you speak to us? And then, God, if there's some way that you're calling us to change or to move or or to do something, that you would give us the courage to do it. So, God, help us. God, help us as we move through this text this morning. We just pray this in your name. Amen. Title of the message this morning is A Cry for Help. A cry for help, and that's exactly what we see with Habakkuk crying out to the Lord. In fact, look at verse 1 here as we just begin to walk through the text. Verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And so Habakkuk sees this, this oracle. Now the word oracle, interestingly enough, actually means burden. And typically, right, typically our crying out to the Lord originates with some kind of struggle, some kind of burden, some kind of, of difficulty in our lives. And so uh, no, no surprise that what shows up after this uh, is tied to this idea that this burden or this oracle that Habakkuk saw. But see, Habakkuk is different than all other prophets in the Old Testament. Because typically what happens with the prophets is that God would speak to the prophet And then the prophet would go and speak to the people. They were the mouthpiece or the messenger of God to the people. But Habakkuk is almost a prophet in reverse. In that he is speaking for the people to God. He he is essentially lodging a complaint uh, to to God with respect to the people. And what, what is going on in his day is Habakkuk is looking out over the land. He's looking out over the nation. And in his mind, he's trying to reconcile, he's trying to put together what he knows to be true about God. God, I know that you're good, and I know that you're just, and I know that you're fair, and that you're loving, and I know that you deal with wickedness, and I know this to be true of you, but when I look out at the land around me, it's not what I see. You might feel like that today. You might feel the same way. I know this to be true about God, but when I look out at what I see, what I'm seeing is not reflected in what I know to be true about God. So he sees the wickedness, he sees the injustice, he sees the violence. And essentially what he's saying is, God, why aren't you dealing with this? God, why aren't you doing something about this? Ever been there? Ever been in that place? And you're going, God, why aren't you moving? Why aren't you working? Why, why aren't you changing hearts? Why aren't you changing minds? Why aren't you changing? Why aren't you doing this? God, where are you at? It might be the loneliest place in all of human existence. And so he goes to God. He sees this and he goes to God. You, you could even say that Habakkuk confronts God, which is where the book starts. And this exchange between Habakkuk and God that plays out over the course of this short book. And really one of the things I want to say here at the outset of the series is I want us to pay careful attention to, to the shift and the change in Habakkuk as a person. Because what he's going to say in verses 2, 3, and 4 are legitimate concerns. They are legitimate questions. They are legitimate observations. But something's going to change in him. And so over the course of the next number of weeks, it would be good for us to just keep that in our mind. How is God changing him? And so this morning, as we look at the whole of this text, here's really the, the main idea, the nail of, of where we're going. And there's two parts to this. Here it is, loved ones. 
God brings judgment to secure salvation. God brings judgment to secure salvation. Okay? He's, he is dealing with evil. He is dealing with judgment. He is dealing with sin. He is dealing with wickedness. But then the other side of that is our response. See, our response is to trust God in His work and in His justice. Even when we can't see it. Because sometimes we will simply not be able to see it. And so while I know, I'm sure all of you woke up and it's like, man, I really hope I go to church. I'm going to talk about judgment. I love talking about judgment. It's like my favorite thing. I'm guessing none of you woke up thinking that. But that's where the text moves us. But we have to understand, listen, you you don't have the gospel if we're not honest about the reality of judgment. So let's just begin to walk through this. Two things, two main points uh, in Habakkuk 1 uh, that we're going to see this morning. Here's the first, a cry for help. And, and, we, and this is broken down into Habakkuk's complaint or his lament or his petition to God and then God's response to him. And so in verses 2 through 4, we have this. We have a lament to God to act. Habakkuk's complaint, he's crying out for the people. And notice he, asks, he starts by asking three questions. How long shall I cry for help? The implication of the second uh, question in verse 2 is, how long shall I cry to you violence? And then in verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? So he's asking how long and he's asking why. Now this speaks both to his struggle and frustration with what he sees and what's going on and, and God, why aren't you doing something? But it also speaks into the reality of where the nation of Israel was at and how sinful and wicked they were. And this, How long? God, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or how long shall I cry to you violence and you will not save? How long is this going to go on before you're going to do something? How long before you're going to act? What Habakkuk is engaging here, hear this, loved ones, what he's engaging here is unanswered prayer. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about prayer that goes unanswered, at least from his perspective. From his perspective, he's like, I keep crying out. I keep telling you. I'm, I'm begging you to do this, and you are not responding. God, why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you working? Why aren't you responding? Which leads to, why? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why are you doing nothing? I mean, th- those two questions, how long and why, those are the questions that people ask when you see violence. Those are the questions that people ask when you see injustice. Those are the questions that people ask when they're suffering in their life. And he's asking these questions. That how long? Why? A couple of important aspects for us to engage or to, or to consider as we think about this because from Habakkuk's perspective, God is not doing anything. In reality, Answer this question for me. In reality, is that true? No. He can't see it, which doesn't make it untrue. He just can't see it. But in reality, God is, in fact, doing something. Think about your own life. Something that you're begging God to move in. Something that you're begging God to work in. Or, God, why why is this? How long? what, What is the deal here? And sometimes, sometimes we think of those questions and we're frustrated because God does not respond immediately. And yet I couldn't help but think of 2 Peter 3. And Peter, in 2 Peter 3, Peter's talking about the delay, right? The sovereign or the divine delay of God. And you know what he talks about? He says he does that in hopes of repentance. He delays for our good and for our well-being. Sometimes the thing in your life where you're asking how long or why, what's best for you is that God would allow you to sit in that because something better is down the road. We don't tend to think of it that way. Yet the scriptures are so clear on that. Came across a great quote with respect to this uh, this week in my study. In fact, I forgot to write down who said it, um, but I didn't say it. And here's what uh, is said. The author said this, since prayer is provided specifically as the framework in which all the burdens of God's people may be poured out before the Lord, prayers expressing perplexity are appropriate so long as they are offered in a context of trust. Did you hear that? 
Prayers of perplexity are appropriate so long as they're offered in the context of trust. God, I don't get this, but I, I, I'm going to trust you, but I need you to help me in this. He goes on and he says this, so long as the mystery of iniquity is at work, God's people shall long earnestly from relief, or sorry, shall long earnestly for relief from its pain. In short, he's saying all of these things should push us right back to the person of God. I would follow up that quote by saying this, that only God can answer the perplexing question of injustice and evil that is prayed against and goes unanswered. God's the only one that, God, God why would you allow this? Why, why has this not stopped? Why, why does this keep happening? Why is there injustice? God's the only one that can answer that question. See, Habakkuk is actually right to go to God with this. And you and I should do the same. We should be quick in going to God and going, God, God, help me in this. In fact, I'll push it even further. I, I would say that God expects and desires that we pray through difficulty, that we, he expects and desires us that, that in terms of injustice and wickedness and things like that. He expects us to come to him. But on the other side of that, that we must trust that God is in fact at work in these situations, even if from my perspective I am incapable of seeing it. And so while Habakkuk is saying, I, I can't see it, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not, God, you're not saving, you're not acting, the reality couldn't be further from the truth. But in Habakkuk going to God, what happens in verse 5 and following is that God exposes that he is in fact working. And you and I, when we go to God in this, he is going to help us understand that he is in fact working working. Let me say one other thing about this. Just take a moment to address this idea of lament. I say that word lament, and I think we all get it at some level what that is in a generic sense and in a spiritual sense or in a biblical sense. To lament is the idea that I can express frustration, disappointment, confusion, or similar feelings or sentiments to God. That I'm honest with God. Hear me when I say this. By and large, we're not very good at this. We're just not very good at lamenting. I think some of it is because we're proud. I think some of it is tied to our self-sufficiency. I'll figure it out. I'll do it on my own. I think some of it, if we're honest with ourselves, as we look at verse 2 and verse 3 and we go, you can't talk to God like that. Only a fool. To, like, hey, you, you know what, Habakkuk, if you're going to say that, that's fine. I'm going to scoot over here just so when the lightning strikes. Like, I'm just out of the strike zone. See, when we think about lament, we feel like we can't really be honest and real, even though God knows exactly what's going on inside of us, which just makes us fake. And you think about lament, and, and, and I mean, how many times in the Psalms or how many times in the prophets do we see laments? And they're saying this. I mean, the entire book of Habakkuk is a lament. We have an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations. It's about lamenting. And I think it's crucial for us to see laments in the way that God intended them to be seen. So make note of this. Here, here's what laments are not. Laments are not us popping off to God. They're not us being disrespectful. They're not us being malicious. I've heard people say things like this. Well, oh, I can't wait till I get face to face with God. I got something I got to say to him. Can I just help you with that? <laughs> when you get face to face with God, it won't happen very long before you're going to be on your face. All right? Now, God might have some things for you. Um, I'm not sure what you're going to have for him, but it's not going to be a piece of your mind. <laughs> laments are not that. Here's what laments are. Are. They are honest and real expressions to God about legitimate concerns and asking legitimate questions. Now, I don't know about you, I don't feel like I have to look very far, far in, in our day and age to find a number of things that are worthy of lamenting about. Last week, last week, right to Life Sunday, talking about abortion and life and God's care for life. I was doing some reading on that this week. And um, 1990 was the watermark, the high mark for abortions in our country. Over 1.6 million babies aborted that year. 
Since then, we've seen that number come down to close to a million. And I was sitting there, and part of me was like, man, that's great. We're moving downward. And then the, the reality of half the state of New Mexico was aborted in our country alone last year. That's something to lament about. You keep reading about 10, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old girls that are kidnapped and sold into the sex slave industry. That's a heinous injustice. It's an incredible violation. That is something for us to lament about. That's just awful. I think any delusion about us as a country that we could look beyond the color of someone's skin by and large, I I think we've we've pulled the mask off the reality that for far too many of us that really is a deep-seated issue that we can't look beyond. That we fail to see the image of God in someone because they look differently than me because their ancestors lived in a different part of the world than me. That's something to lament about. Thinking about end-of-life issues. I mean, just more and more casual and cavalier with the ways in which just call it quits. I give another 20 things. You get the point. The point of lament, first of all, an honest and real expression to God about legitimate concerns and asking legitimate questions, right? Habakkuk's trying to reconcile. I know this to be true about God, and yet this is what I continue to see unfolding. See, the, the crucial point of a lament is that we would be returned to or restored to God. That, that I, as I see injustice and oppression and, and all the wrong that's, that's unfolding around us, that, that in one sense, what does it say about us if we can look at all of that and be unfazed? What does that say about us if we can talk about abortion and sex slave and, 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 and bigotry and racism and, and, and our, our cavalier attitude of life and be like, eh, I don't know what to tell you. That says an awful lot about us, none of which is good. But to lament. See, the point is that I'm pointed back to God. That that God moves us from a place of disorientation to orientation. I'm brought back to God. That's what we'll see happen in the book of Habakkuk. If you go to Psalm 73 or Psalm 77, those are some of the best examples of guys who are lamenting and, and, and just in this horrible place and all of a sudden they're, they're saying, what well, God is great like our God. But I think the best example in all of the scriptures is found in Lamentations chapter 3. Now most of us, most of us are pretty familiar with where that chapter ends because it's a pretty awesome text. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's an awesome text. Are you aware of the fact that just a couple verses earlier, what Jeremiah is saying is he's talking about being hopeless? He, he uses one of the things I just, <coughs> this just is, ugh. but he, he says, I feel like you've made my teeth to grind on gravel. I've forgotten, he says, I have forgotten what happiness is. Those are just a couple of verses before what one of the most prominent verses in the entire Old Testament. Now, one of two things is going on. Either that guy's a little bit unstable in the head, or there's some reorientation that's taking place. I'm willing to go with the latter on that. See, that's what lament does is that we, we look at the injustice, we look at the oppression, we look at violence, we look at these things, and, and we're going, God, wh- why is this happening and why aren't you acting? And then God begins to move us. A lament to God to act. We see these three questions briefly. Let me just touch on these three statements of wickedness in the second half of three in chapter four. He says, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. I mean, these are some pretty vivid and and graphic word pictures. The law is paralyzed. I mean, doesn't that just capture that injustice is ruling the day? The wicked surround the righteous. You you just have this sense of people moving in, surrounding them in every place. And he's describing the reality that he lives in. Maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you're wondering the same thing. God, God, why are you, where are you? What are you doing? 
this injustice is, is unfolding and you're not, you're not acting. And again, just to drive this point home, from Habakkuk's perspective, it's true, but his perspective, just like your perspective and my perspective, is limited. We can only see the little piece that you and I can see. We cannot see the whole picture. We see very, very differently than God does. Let me try to illustrate this. So, um, I've got Wilson here. Uh, not really, okay? There's a volleyball. Now, from at any point in time, I can see part of the ball in the same way that you can see part of the ball. Can any of you see the entirety of the ball at, at, at any point in time? How about now? No, you can't see the top, right? How about now? No, you can't see the bottom. Like, how about, right? You can see part of it, but you do not see everything at once. Now, you can turn it around and in short order be like, okay, I think I see all of it. But we see bits and pieces of this. At every moment, throughout all of eternity past and for all of eternity future, God sees the entirety of this. He does not have a limited perspective. So you guys see right now, uh, you guys see Wilson quicksand. I don't see that. I've got stuff talking about moistening needles and a barcode and things like that. Right? So we're not seeing the same thing. But at any point in time, God sees the entirety of what is going on. And I think the danger for us, the danger for us, is I think that far too often we are far too quick to move to the place that based on my very limited perspective, God is not moving or acting when in reality, he is very much so moving and acting. He's just doing it in his own way, in his own time, for his own purposes. A lament to God to act. Here's the second piece. It's God's response to our cry. God's response to our cry. First words that God says to Habakkuk is he responds by saying this, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. That, I, that's a great verse. There's a lot of really great things that are going on in there. In verse 5 and 6, part of what we see is God affirming that he's at work. In fact, make note of some of the ways that we see God affirming that he's at work. First of all, God is gracious in his response. There's no indictment of Habakkuk from God. He's not rebuking him. He, didn't even, he doesn't even disagree with him. I mean, God could have very easily been like, listen up, tiny. Let me tell you how this is going to go. You don't, you don't talk to me like that. I mean, God could have just been like, poof, he's gone. I mean, he'd done whatever he wanted. But he lovingly engages him, which I think is a good reminder that it affirms God's invitation towards us to be real with him about where we're at. He's gracious in response. Notice, secondly, God's command for Habakkuk to look. In fact, he gives four commands in verse 5. Look, see, wonder, be astounded. I want you to look, Habakkuk. I want you to see. And then when you do that, I want you to wonder and I want you to be astounded. I'm going to blow your mind, man. I'm going to blow your mind. I think as people, we need to be challenged to be stretched to be more intentional about looking for the places and ways that God is working. That we would be more in tune, more, more, more locked in on, okay, um, God, God is moving here. God is working in this. God is acting here. God's hand is pushing this. That we're intentional about that. That we're looking for that. That, that, that we're, we're seeking to find that. Here's a couple ways that I think we do this, that we take notice of how God is answering prayer, even, listen very carefully, even if God is not answering prayer the way that you want him to. I think one of the greatest dangers in evangelical Christianity is we think God only answers prayer when he does what we want him to. A lot of times God does just the opposite because he knows what's better for you than you do. And so he doesn't give you what you want. He gives you what you need and what is best. But we're like, well, God, I really wanted this, and you didn't give it to me, so God didn't answer my prayer. Yes, he did. And you can't even see how it's better for you. And maybe you'll never see the side of eternity how it's better for you. But eventually, there'll come a day where you oh, man, I'm so glad you didn't answer my prayer. 
We've got to be able to recognize that. That God, God is answering prayer and He's doing what is best and what is right and, and what is most profitable for me and what is most honoring and glorifying to Him, even if it's not what I want. It's the same application that God is working even if it's not what we wanted Him to do. God, I really wanted you to change this person's heart. God, I really wanted you to change my wife. And you're not acting. Maybe God wants to change you. You ever think about that? Maybe that's part of the process. See, we've we, we got to pay attention to the places and the ways that God is working. It's like, look, see. And I think we've got to do this. I love, I love the, the, the progression here. We have to do this because if we don't, we miss some of the greatest work that God does. Because look at what comes next. Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. And then he says this, Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Now, now where we started, the, the main idea of where we started, we're going to tie all of it together right here. This idea that God brings judgment to secure salvation and that our response is to trust God in his work and in his justice. See, what we see about God's response to our cry is the surprise of God's work. We, we see the surprise of God's work. The, the, the God it works in very surprising ways. And Habakkuk 1, 5 It's a great verse. That'd look pretty good on a t-shirt, maybe on a coffee cup, a Christian calendar. I don't know. Maybe that'd be a great theme verse for a mission trip. Here's what you got to understand about that verse. It's a verse on judgment. All of a sudden, maybe you don't want that on a t-shirt or on a coffee cup, right? Be reminded of that reality. And it's, we know that to be true because of what we see in the beginning of verse six. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. I'm going to blow your mind. Okay, great, great. What is it? Hey, you know the Chaldeans? I'm going to raise them up and they're going to destroy you. Wait, what? Yeah, that, that nation on the other side of Assyria, they're, they're not much now, but in short order, they're going to take over the Assyrians. They're going to come in. They're going to take over you guys. They're going to lead you captive, take you exile. And they're going to be the instrument that I use to accomplish what you are frustrated about in verses 2, 3, and 4. It's the surprise of God's work. Now, now just to try to put this in, in, in a way that you and I would understand the severity and how shocking this is, it would be similar to saying um, God is going to use ISIS to straighten out America. Now, most of inside of all of us are like, no, that, God would never do that. That's exactly what he would do because we've seen him do that. That's what he did in Habakkuk 1. I'm going to use the Chaldeans See, th- this statement in verse 6 is shocking. It is unbelievable. It is scandalous. But again, the whole way to the Old Testament is leaning forward towards the cross. What do we know about the cross? It's shocking. It's unbelievable. It's scandalous. Right? This is the surprise of God. In fact, Habakkuk 1.5, Paul quotes this in Acts 13. He's on his first missionary journey. He quotes Habakkuk 1.5 as a way of helping the people to understand just how shocking and how surprising that forgiveness in Jesus and in him alone is what saves people from their sin. It's that same principle, that same concept that we see in Mark 8. Remember Mark 8? The book of Mark, Gospel of Mark, two main parts. One, uh, that Jesus is the Messiah, the first half of the book of Mark. Second half of the book of Mark, the type of Messiah, the type of Savior, that Jesus is a suffering servant. And the pivot point in the book of Mark is is in in 827, Peter is confessing Jesus as the Christ. You're the one, you're the guy. And then Jesus says, you're right. And the Son of Man is going to suffer and die. And Peter pulls him aside and he begins to rebuke him. Saying, this, this, <laughs> that's not it. That's not how it plays out. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. Anytime Jesus calls you Satan and you're not Satan, that's a bad thing, okay? It's the shock and the surprise of the cross. It's the shock and the surprise and the scandal that God brings judgment to secure salvation. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. 
It's utterly scandalous that he would take the, the, the second member of the Trinity in all perfection and all holiness and all righteousness, that, that he would veil himself in human flesh and live a life of perfection, all with the intent of going to the cross to redeem a group of rebellious, wicked, broken sinners. That's scandalous. That's shocking. If it wasn't in this book, it wouldn't be believable. See, and the offense that the nation of Judah would have had around the Chaldeans is the same offense that we would find in the cross. God's saying to Habakkuk, I am working, I am doing something, and it's going to blow your mind, but it's going to be brutal. Now, I think in one sense, it's easier for us because we live on the other side of the cross to recognize this. I think not having to live through captivity probably makes it a little easier as well. But let's just press this in our own life here a little bit. In your own day-to-day living, on a Tuesday afternoon, on a Thursday morning, when you're frustrating phone call with your mom or something bad happens at work or whatever it may be, can I recognize the work of God amidst the surprise? Here's what I mean by that. Can you see it in things like cancer? Can you see the kindness and grace of God in something like cancer? Now, that, that's a pretty shocking example. Let me just unpack it a little bit. I've heard numerous people over the years tell me things to the effect of, um, I would have never chosen cancer, but I'm so glad that I had it because God did blank. I recognize the work of God, even amidst the shock and surprise of what was unfolding. So in your own life, can I begin to recognize as I struggle, I've lost my job or there's financial struggle or there's relational strife or my family's falling apart or whatever it is. Can you see that? Can you see the surprise of God's work? Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Kind of an arrogant brother. Wouldn't have been the best younger brother to have. I mean, would have been kind of obnoxious, honestly. But have you ever stopped to think about that one of the most wicked and vile means um, of, of, of money-making, one of the most wicked and vile means of, of, of anything that humans have created, I'm talking about slavery, becomes the form or the instrument that God uses to provide for his people and to prolong the covenant promise that he had with Abraham and to sustain it. Because years later, when famine strikes the land and there's no food to eat, who's second in charge and in control of all the food? It's the guy who was sold into slavery. Just a horribly evil and wicked, vile means that God uses to care for his people. And in the same way that God uses those very wicked and evil means that he is going to use the Chaldeans as an instrument for his good and for the nation of Judah's good. Let's not miss that. Can you identify the surprise of God in your life and do you realize that it's for your good? And even if you can't identify it in the moment, will you trust God that that's true? God's response to our cry, he affirms that he's at work. Here's the other thing. Um, In verse 6 through 11, God describes his instrument of judgment. First of all, I wouldn't read verses 6 through 11 to your kids right before bed. Um, it's not exactly, you know, like some, some happy fairy tale ending. This is, this is pretty savage, uh, what's unfolding here. And um, w- we could talk a lot about, you know, what is going on and, and, and who this nation is. Suffice to say that this is a very wicked and vile nation, and yet God is going to use them. God is going to use the Chaldeans as an instrument. Let me just maybe give some broad strokes of what happens here. That God describes his instrument of judgment. First of all, that instrument is not inherently good. The Chaldeans are not being used because there's some righteous standard of goodness. They are equally wicked. Um, And in fact, in chapter 2, God pronounces judgment on them. There are some of the things in verses 6 through 11 that bear out why judgment should come to them. They're not inherently good, and yet God uses them. And isn't that so comforting for you and I? That God uses broken, wicked, vile instruments to accomplish his good. Which is you and I, in case you're not making the connection. God uses us 
in our brokenness. God uses us in our frailty. God uses us in, in our sinfulness and our rebellion and rejection of him. Secondly, make note of this, that God is ultimately in control. God is ultimately in control. He's in control of Judah's fate. He uses the Chaldeans to accomplish something in Judah, and then it's only 70 years later, he's going to use another nation to deal with the Chaldeans. Even the nations are pawns in his hand. And in the same way that God is in control of the situation in Judah and in the situation uh, with the Chaldeans, God's in control of your life. Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled into thinking that somehow something in your life is out of control and God is unaware of it. Here's the third thing. God will not be mocked or played. God's not mocked, he's not played. We saw that in Galatians 6, right? What you reap is what you will sow. God calls you to something, he's going to hold you to that. The nation of Israel and the nation of Judah were called to certain standards, to certain ways, to a certain life. They, didn't, they, they, they rejected and rebelled against it, and so God dealt with them. And you see in this, I mean, there's some irony. Into verse 6, the Chaldeans are going to seize dwellings not their own, just like the Israelites did as they went into the land of Canaan. In verse 9, it talks about they gather captives like sand. And you can't not think of sand in the Old Testament and not think of the promise of Abraham. Numerous is the sand on the seashore. Yeah, God's going to deal with them. Just because you're part of God's covenant promise doesn't mean that you get a free pass to live as you please. God will not be played. He will not be mocked. God describes his instrument of judgment. Now, I mean, honestly, all week I've just kind of struggled and wrestled with how do you, I mean, how do you preach something like this? What do you do with this? How do you follow? How do you close something like this? Six verses on a wrath, that God's instrument of wrath. Hey, God's going to destroy you and devour you, and it's going to be horrible. You're loved. Have a great week. I mean, I, I don't know what you do. Honestly, I just struggled with this. So here's, here's I want to give us four things. I want to close with four things. What do we do with this? And I, pro- I promise as we move through the book, it gets better. This is the hardest part, okay? It does get better. What do we do with this? Here's the first that you and I would be honest and real with God. In every facet of your life, wherever you find yourself, that you'd be honest and real. That we would not be afraid of lament, that, that, that we wouldn't be afraid of just telling God where we're really at, what we're struggling with, where, uh, what, what's hard for us. We'd just be honest and real. But in the process, listen, in the process, the desire is that God would reorient you back to himself. Not just popping off. God, let me give you a piece of my mind and I'm, on, and I'm on my own. No, 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 that's not how it works. But let's be honest and real. Secondly, let's look for where God is at work and let's acknowledge it. Not just where I want him to be at work, not just what I want him to do for me, not just what I uh, am, am really anxious for. Let's get really good at being able to identify God is working here. Even when it's really, really hard. Even when I can't see it even when it's angering or frustrating or, or just completely disrupts your plan for life, going, God, you're doing this for a reason. Let's look for that. Third, I think this is honestly the hardest one of these four. Let's trust that God is at work even when you can't see it. Let's trust that God is at work even when you can't see it. When Becky and I were living in Flagstaff, the church that we were at, um, one of the elders and his wife, it was, it was uh, his wife's sister's son, a little boy named Cal. And right around the time that Cal turned three, uh, was diagnosed with just this horrendous form of leukemia or cancer. I don't remember which, but just something hideous. And so over the course of really the next 12 to 18 months, they watched him die. Bearing a, bearing a child has got to be the hardest why out there. And I remember probably about two weeks after Cal's funeral, um, we had our elder meetings in the morning, and Doug and I were just talking in the lobby of the church afterwards, and I was just kind of asking him how he's doing, and, and I just said, Doug, man, how in the world do you walk through something like that? 
How do you do that? And D- Doug is literally a genius. I mean, he's one of the smartest guys I've ever met. He is literally a genius. And he just sat there, and he was silent for probably 20 seconds. And just kind of looking away, you see he was thinking. And, and he finally said this. He said, Mike, I don't get it. It's hard. I'm angry. And then he said this. He said, I believe God does what is good and what is best. Now listen very carefully. And he said, and since I can't see it, I will hold on to the goodness of God that I know to be true until I can. Isn't that awesome? Just trust that God is at work even when you can't see it. Here's the final thing, that we look for the surprise of God's work. Let's look for the surprise of God's work. Maybe, maybe the worst thing that's going to ever happen in your life is also going to be the most glorious thing that God is going to accomplish in your life. That's part of what happens for Judah. We see that bore out in the cross. I mean, that, that principle is most true in the cross with Jesus. A cry for help. We need to cry out for help. And we have a God that wants us to cry out for help. And we have a God who will respond to our cry for help. But he will do so in his time and in his way. And he will do what is best for us and what is most honoring and glorifying to him. Let's pray. Jesus, as we think of, these are hard words. But they're no less true. And so as we think of these words, God, we pray, God, we just pray that you would give us faith to believe. God, that you would give us the confidence um, to trust even in the midst of not being able to see it. God, help us to be honest. Help us to be real. God, forgive us for ways that, that we f- we're fake, that we pretend like things are good or we tell you one thing, but when in reality, deep down, something very different is going on. God, would you, would you remove that from us? Would you help us just to be honest and real with you? Would you help us to trust you, to follow you, to look for the ways that you're at work. And then, just like you tell Habakkuk, not only would we look and see, but God, would we wonder and be astounded at what you've done. We pray this in your name. Amen.